Well, uh, we are approaching the time of year uh, when memoirs and biographies and autobiographies start to appear in the bookshops. Uh, They make very good Christmas presents. There are only three months to go till Christmas. Uh, There's sporting biographies. There's political biographies. I'm sure this year there'll be lots of royal biographies, that kind of thing. Maybe you have one that you want to uh, read soon. And I think part of the reason that uh, biographies are so popular is that uh, human beings are fascinated by other people's stories. And we're quite nosy by nature. And we uh, like often the idea of walking around in someone else's shoes. What would that be like? What's their life like? And this chapter, Daniel chapter 4, is like that. It's a confession. It's It's a memoir of the most important experience in one king's life, in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Now, we're going to look at it tonight. And before we do, I want to point out the structure. If you look at the beginning and you look at the end, I wonder if you can see how it's laid out. The beginning and the end are quite similar. Um, If this passage were a sandwich verses 1 to 3, and verses 34 to 37, that would be the bread, and verse 4 to 33, that would be the filling, a big filling. And the slices on the outside, they are Nebuchadnezzar's words of doxology, words of praise, words of worship. The chapter, it begins and ends with words like that. But in between are words of testimony. Nebuchadnezzar tells us what happened to him. So I've got two points tonight. Two points tonight. We're going to let the the, the structure uh, dictate the sermon outline. Uh, Two points tonight. We're going to start with the filling. And then we're going to come back to the the, uh, edges at the end. So two points tonight, and the first is this, verse 4 to 33, the dream that came to pass, the dream that came to pass. Now, I said I had two points, but I want to give you four words, okay, four words to get into this dream and its meaning, verse 4 to 33. This is a five-point sermon in disguise, and uh, the first word is trepidation, trepidation. It all begins with a fright at night. And this is the second dream in the book. The first came in chapter two, if you've not been part of the series up till now. Nebuchadnezzar had just besieged Judah, and it was a really turbulent time. But here in chapter four, things seem a lot more settled. Time has passed, And verse 4, it makes clear, doesn't it, that he's at ease, he's prospering, he's in a much more settled place. And it's at this point that he has a dream that makes him very afraid. I think lots of people who come to faith do so after having a similar experience to this. Things are going really well, They, they don't really think about God. And then something happens that just shakes them up. Maybe that's 
been your experience. Maybe that's something we should pray for friends who don't know Jesus. Shake them up a bit. Now, Nebuchadnezzar does what kings do when this kind of thing happens. He issues a royal decree. Uh, Just like chapter 2, he calls in all his advisors. He asks them to try and help him figure it all out. And they say that the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And the same thing happens here. Nebuchadnezzar tells us that none of his spiritual advisors could figure this dream out. Unlike chapter 2, he does tell them the dream, but it's still a great mystery. And that leads us to the second word. We don't just see trepidation here, we see limitation, limitation. One of the big themes in Daniel is the weakness of human power. And in this book, we're reminded again and again that there are things that leaders are unable to control. There are realms beyond their reach. And Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is reminding us of that. Again, the silence of his advisors. Their silence, it speaks volumes. It shows there's a limit to human insight, a limit to human understanding. And it reminds us that human beings need a word from outside. A word from outside if they're going to truly understand their experiences. Many people today believe all that exists, all that is real, is all that we can see and touch and measure. And someone has called this the imminent frame the imminent frame. People who think like this, they don't believe there is anything beyond the the walls of the universe. They think of the universe as a closed system. And maybe tonight that's your view. Maybe it's been your view in the past, but Christians think very differently. To use the frame language, they believe that, that God the Creator has entered the picture um, it's like the artist drawing himself into the painting. It's like the director writing himself into the play. He's broken in. He's revealed himself. And God does this because human beings are lost, because we're in the dark. But when he speaks to us, you and I, we don't always like what he has to say to us. We don't always like the sound of his voice. It can be very uncomfortable. When God speaks, well, we can be like I think Daniel is in verse 19. Look at how he reacts to hearing this dream and and understanding it. He's dismayed. He's alarmed. It's very similar to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 8. And what had he heard? Well, we find out in verses 10 to 18. In these verses, Nebuchadnezzar tells us what he had told Daniel, what his dream was all about. And that's our third word. Trepidation, limitation, word number three, explanation. 
Nebuchadnezzar comes to Daniel and he says, I saw a great tree. I saw a great tree. And General Sherman is the name of a giant sequoia tree in a national park in California. It is estimated to be two and a half thousand years old. And it is the largest single stem tree on earth. But the tree that Nebuchadnezzar saw was greater. He saw it grow and reach to heaven, verse 11. It was beautiful. It was enormous. It was fruitful. Beasts and birds, all creatures were able to be fed by it. It gave them shade and protection. Now, um, maybe this is just because I was in the botanics yesterday and back near wood. But I think we could do uh, a theology of trees, okay? Uh, The Bible is full of trees. There's the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There's the person who delights in God's word in Psalm 1. In Psalm 92, mature believers are uh, described as still bearing fruit in old age. The Old Testament talks about the cedars of Lebanon. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. He died on a cross. He's the true vine. There's a great tree in Revelation chapter 22. There's something about trees that God seems to like. There's something about trees that is beautiful. And I think that's what makes the next thing Nebuchadnezzar tells so horrifying. He says he saw a watcher, an angelic being, verse 13. A holy one who comes and calls out for the destruction of this tree. And it's described in detail, verse 14. Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit. So Nebuchadnezzar sees a tree. But then he sees something else. One of the commentators points out that um, what's happening here is what happens in our dreams. Things merge, don't they? One minute we're dreaming about one thing, and the next we're dreaming about something else. And the watcher, he speaks of a man who becomes like an animal. And he is going to live among beasts. His mind is going to be changed. He's sentenced. He's punished. And then in verse 17, we get the theme of the dream. Why is all this going to happen? Why is it going to happen? So the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And we know that verse 17 is the theme, I think, of this dream because those exact words really are repeated in verse 25 and verse 32. But did you notice the name God is given there? He's the Most High. Now, that title is used of God six times in this whole chapter, and it's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar was learning. It was a lesson that he was being taught that there was a king, a ruler, someone above him. We see this so clearly in the last word, trepidation, limitation, explanation, humiliation. Humiliation. 
See, as Daniel gives the meaning of this dream in verse 20 and following, well, we can see why he was so alarmed. He has to tell the king, you, sir, are this tree. You have become great. Your dominion is to the end of the earth. But you're about to be chopped down. All of that is about to end. You are going to become like an animal. All of this is going to happen to you unless you repent, verse 27. Um, Ian Kershaw, he's uh, known to be one of the great biographers of Adolf Hitler. And his biography of Hitler is a two-parter. And they are both absolute doorstoppers. Okay, 2,000 pages. I don't know why you would want to read 2,000 pages about Adolf Hitler. Uh, Don't ask for that for Christmas. Okay, I've not read them. Uh, But the first uh, charts Hitler's rise to power. And the second, his downfall. And the subtitles of those two books are this. They are hubris and nemesis. Hubris and nemesis. Hubris means excessive pride and self-confidence. Nemesis is a downfall that is caused by some inescapable agent. And with some people, their nemesis is their hubris, their pride. The thing that ultimately brings them down is their pride. This was true of Hitler. He wanted the world. He was willing to fight on two fronts to try and get the world, but he didn't account for the Russian winter. And Nebuchadnezzar is just like him. In verse 28 and following, his dream comes true. Now notice the delay. Notice the delay in verse 29 at the end of 12 months. I guess he must have thought that, well, the judgment Daniel promised wasn't going to happen. Maybe Daniel was wrong this time, that kind of thing. Or maybe he was just so caught up in the business and the busyness of his kingdom, he simply forgot all about it. And he goes up to the roof of his palace. And we're not told this detail in the text, but I imagine him wanting some air, maybe after a big meal or something like that. He looks across whole empire and the words of verse 30 they just fall off his tongue see back in chapter one we learned that it was the lord who had given even just judah into his hand but here he could only see his own greatness is not this great babylon which i have built And in that moment, it all comes crashing down. There's a voice from heaven. And he becomes like a beast. There's a really famous painting of uh, this. You can Google it uh, later. Uh, William Blake, Nebuchadnezzar, depicts uh, Nebuchadnezzar on all fours. And the nails on his hands and his feet are all grown his beard, his hair, and he has a a look of absolute terror on his face. Friends, I think there's a message for us here. God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. There is only one king. He has power to oppose and depose. He decides who gets to rule. That's such a simple truth. But it's one that needs to go deep and deep into our bones. There's a second thing, and I'll be much briefer here. In these verses, we don't just see the dream that came to pass. We also see the king who came to kneel. The king who came to kneel. I'm sure uh, lots of you have watched uh, over the past week, maybe seen coverage or highlights of uh, the Queen's funeral. And I thought there was one moment in that funeral that was electric. And it was during uh, the final hymn. It was the hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. If you know the hymn, you'll remember that in the final verse, the focus suddenly goes to the moment that believers will enter the new creation. And it goes like this, change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And on earth, the the queen had an earthly crown, didn't she? But Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Christians can look forward to receiving a crown in the future. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And I'm sure that the queen chose that hymn to make the point that when she saw Jesus, well, she would lay down her crown at his feet. And the same is true for every Christian. When we see Jesus, we will bow, we will kneel. And Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was starting to do this. The the humiliation he experienced, it had an impact on him, it changed him. And in verses 34 to 37, we see him restored. Two things are restored. Can you see that? Alongside the restoration of his kingdom, he says twice in verse 34 and 36 that his reason returned to him. And this was like the restoration of his humanity. He was being changed back from a kind of animal man to living as someone who was truly human. Friends, this is what happens when we become Christians. And this is what happens every time we turn back to God in repentance and faith. We start to live in line with reality. It's what Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 12. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Literally, this is your logical, reasonable worship. This makes sense. Some of you may be familiar with the story of um, Jonathan Aitken. Um, He was a a man who um, experienced a a humiliation not unlike this. 
And he was in the 90s probably a prime minister in waiting. He was a member of the Tory cabinet. And yet he committed perjury. He, he lied under oath. And he went to prison for that. And his marriage ended. And he became bankrupt. And his whole political career was over. This gifted, talented, very able man was brought incredibly low. But when that happened, he found faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His whole life, the whole direction of his life was completely turned around. And in many ways, that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. It's exactly what can happen to us. When we put our trust in God, then like Nebuchadnezzar, we start to see our place in the universe. We start to see the world doesn't revolve around us. We recognize a higher authority. We understand that blessing and praising and honoring God is what we were made for. Uh, the great uh, writer G.K. Chesterton, he once said this, think about this statement I'm about to say to you. He said, we become taller when we bow. We become taller when we bow. Nebuchadnezzar learned that. The suffering, the humiliation he went through, it caused him, it helped him to see things as they really were. And maybe tonight you're in something like that kind of situation. Maybe someone you love is. Maybe you've been living in rebellion. Maybe God is humbling you, breaking you. And if he is, or if he ever does, well, he'll only be doing that to win you back. He'll only be doing that to call you to lift your head out of the muck and start singing again. He'll only be doing that because he wants to be in a right relationship with you. Well, I love the way that Nebuchadnezzar he becomes a kind of evangelist, doesn't he? In verses 1 to 3, if we go back to the first slice of bread, he issues a proclamation to all peoples and nations and languages, everyone who dwells in all the earth should experience peace. It's the kind of thing we'd expect to hear from the UN General Assembly. But then he says, he adds to it, he says, I want you to know that the most, I want you to know what the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. See, Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was humbled. And he went from a high place to a low place and back to a high place again. And I think it's not hard to hear, is it? It's not hard to see the gospel in that, is it? It's not hard to hear a, a, an echo of another king. Paul tells his story. Paul gives us his biography in Philippians chapter 2. The one who was in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
but he made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death on a cross. See, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, but Jesus humbled himself. And think how low he went. Think how lowly he became. Think of his biography. Think of his birth. Think of his willingness to become one of us. Think of his baptism, his full identification with sinful people. Think of his temptation, the devil offering him the world. And yet he chose the cross. Think of all his suffering. Think of the way he did battle for you. Think of his choice in the garden. Think of his long, his painful walk to death. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he he stood on the roof of his palace. He admired his empire. But what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus stepped down and then down and then down and then down and then down. At every single moment he served, he came to undo all the effects of our sin, our pride. God became a slave. And he did it all for us. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him. He has given him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Well, let's do that. Let's have a moment's quiet and then I'll pray.